Turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verses 20 to 30. John 12, 20 to 30. While you turn, I'll set up the context for this passage. Imagine with me that we are able to jump into a time machine and travel back approximately 1,988-ish years ago, give or take 12 to 18 months, and land in Jerusalem a week before the Passover feast. Now, you may want to bring some sunblock with you, or if you are as hairy (coughs) as me, you might want to bring a hat. As we step out of the time machine, we notice people are running to see some kind of commotion outside of Jerusalem's gates. And let's be honest, we like to slow down whenever we see the emergency vehicle lights flashing. So we're going to go out and see what's happening there too. And as we get close to the commotion, the uh, noise rises. We hear people shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Palm branches are waving and being thrown on the ground. People's cloaks are being thrown on the ground as well. A man is riding in the midst of the crowd on a donkey, and he is heading into Jerusalem. He has no form or majesty that we would take notice of him. In other words, he probably wouldn't be a Hollywood star today. And we're left to wonder as we observe this spectacle... What's going on? What's so special about this man? And then something clicks. We realize that this is Jesus and that this must be the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And in the back of our minds, there's a chilling thought. Within days, he will be betrayed, tortured, and crucified. Let's come back to the future. All four Gospels detail the events of Jesus last week on earth with the event we just witnessed at the start, the triumphal entry. In this week's From Pulpit and Paper, you'll see a chronological listing of the scripture passages surrounding this Passion Week for you to use for your devotion time. This should help guide you to really delve into these events that happened starting with Jesus' triumphal entry and ending in his resurrection. Today, we are going to focus on one of those events. In this event, the Apostle John signifies a change in Jesus' tone. What leads to this change? John 12, starting in verse 20. Follow along as I read the first few verses. Now, among those who went up to, Gal- or up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
Now, in these first few verses of the passage, we see some people coming to see Jesus. John introduces us to this group simply by calling them the Greeks. Now, these Greeks were not curious visitors or or one-time investigators. No, these Greeks were most likely God-fearers, since they are described as being among those who, who went up to worship at the feast. Now, their interest in Jesus was probably kindled when Jesus cleansed the temple, most likely happening the day before. The only place in the temple that allowed the buying and selling of sacrifice animals and the exchanging of money was the court of the Gentiles. That is, the place where these Greeks were allowed to worship. These Greeks could have even been in the crowd watching Jesus cleanse the temple. But why did they come to Philip instead of Jesus himself? Well, Philip... Uh, was just like Andrew was one of the only two Greek named disciples of the twelve and both Andrew and Philip are from the town of Bethsaida a town associated at the time with the Greeks very curiously uh, Philip and Andrew were among the first to receive a call to discipleship from Jesus so their presence here establishes a connection between the call of the first Jewish disciples and the uh, arrival of possibly the first Gentile disciples so these two disciples come to Jesus and tell him some Greeks are here to see him I find it curious how Jesus responds the disciples and we might have expected Jesus to say, I'm not seeing the Greeks right now. Or even, I'd be happy to see the Greeks. Or maybe he would have the focus of the, the week in front of him and he'd say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be crucified. But Jesus voiced none of these. In fact, we don't even know that he ever addressed the Greeks at all. Instead, he he looks upon the coming of the Greeks as a sign that the climax of his mission has at last arrived. He looks past the cross to the glory that will follow. Look at verse 23 with me. It says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So this is significant. Because up until this point in the Gospel of John, all references to the arrival of this hour was in the future tense. For example, in John chapter 2, at the wedding of Cana, Jesus' mother tells him that the wine is gone. Jesus says, Dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. He he repeats this again in chapters 7 and 8 of the Gospel of John. But now... Now after his triumphal entry, now after the cleansing of the temple, after the arrival of the Greeks, the hour has at last arrived for him to be glorified. But how will he be glorified? Look at verse 24 with me. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. So Jesus connects his glorification with death. His 
death, a death that will produce fruit. Now this is important for us to understand. See, Christ isn't glorified despite the cross. Christ is glorified in and through the cross. God kills to make alive. The grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die that it may produce fruit. Now the contrast to falling into the earth in this parable is that the grain of wheat won't die and will thus remain alone. If you're like me, you would have expected the contrast to say that the the grain of wheat would rot away. But Jesus isn't concerned here with... um, isn't concerned here with the fate of the grain, but with its productivity. This seed either remains barren or it bears fruit. For Christ, we see through this verse that the eternal life for the many comes through the sacrifice of the one. Unless he dies, there will be no fruit. Unless he dies, there will be no salvation for any sinner. Unless he dies, mankind would be lost in their sin, doomed to an eternal death in hell. But if he does die, which thanks be to God he does, then many would be saved. It is only the crucified Christ dying in the place of sinners who saves. This, this is the glory of Christ his death, and his resurrection. And it is in this, above all else, that he should be honored. For those who believe in Christ, for those who are committed to following him, we too must apply this parable to our lives. We must die to self to produce fruit for Christ. That is our first point for today. We must die to self to produce fruit Christ. We are like seeds. On our own, we are small and insignificant. But through Christ, we have life. However, this life cannot be fulfilled unless we yield ourselves to God to be planted. Now, I'm sure if a seed could talk, it might complain about being put into the cold, dark earth. It may want, as we often do, to have better surroundings or a better status or or better things. But the only way it can produce fruit is by being planted. We must die to self to produce fruit for Christ. Jesus explains this in greater detail in the next verse. Look at verse 25. It says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now what gets lost in this verse is the fact that Jesus is talking about two different concepts of life. In the English, we just read the word life, but there's two different words happening here, two different concepts in the Greek. The first life, the life that we lose because of our love for it, is from the Greek word psyche. It refers to the life of the mind, our desires, our wants. It means the human personality that thinks, that plans for the future, that works for desired goals. Jesus is saying that this is what must die. In other words, the independent will of man must die 
so that the follower of Christ can actively submit his will to God. The other type of life, the other word for life in this verse, the life that will be kept for eternity, is the word zoe in the Greek, which means or refers to our fulfilled eternal life. See, we must lose our self-desired life. In the Greek, we must destroy this type of life in order to gain this eternal, fulfilled life. Now, why would we do this? Why would we lose our life? Why would we uh, charge into an unsafe country to present the gospel? Why would we step into an uncomfortable situation to tell others about Jesus? Why would we leave the comforts of our home and knock on our neighbor's door? Why would we do any of this? Why would we do anything we've rationalized as reckless? Why give up our life? Well, we do it for two reasons. Or at least I hope these two reasons. First, the one who spoke these words did exactly what he said. Jesus gave up his life. And yet he did it in such a way that we wouldn't think him as thoughtless or reckless. Second, by giving up his life, he was extraordinarily successful. He gained both his life and the lives of his people. Through his temporary suffering and death, Jesus gained an eternal inheritance. Friends, we too, like Jesus, we must pursue the eternal over the temporary. That is our second point for today. We must pursue the eternal over the temporary. This means that you must be willing to do anything for Christ as he directs it. This goes against our very nature. See, we'd like to make excuse after excuse to convince ourselves or others that it's okay to keep my life exactly how I want it. And yet, when we look to Jesus' example, when we look to his teaching, every excuse falls through. Jesus spoke these words, and in days he went to a torturous death. Any reason for our unwillingness to, to give up this life, which will gain an eternal life, pales in comparison to Christ and his sacrifice. Do not let temporary afflictions keep you or distract you from eternity. Follow Christ in pursuing the eternal over the temporary. Now some may think, if I'm ever put into that position where I have to choose between my life and Christ, I'll most likely be able to choose Christ. And they assure themselves through this hypothetical situation that they are living out this passage. But Jesus, in the very next verse, confronts this false assurance. Look at verse 26 with me. He said, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, this verse says that the fawner, fawner, Father honors those who humble themselves to be servants, or in the Greek, better translated as slaves, to Christ. And a servant or a slave is a humble position, one that desires our own rights 
uh, one that does not desire our own rights in the present, one that denies our personal justice in the present, one that tries to glorify God, seeks to glorify God in the present. We must seek humility above honor today, not wait for a future day when things align for us. We must seek humility above honor today. That is our third point. We must seek humility above honor. We should do this for two reasons. First, Christ promised that he would be with anyone who followed him. He will be with us to the very end of the age. And secondly, he promised that God would himself honor these servants, would honor these slaves. Seek to serve Christ and be willing to lay your, your life down for him now, today. An early church father, Ignatius, provided an example of how a servant should follow Jesus. Ignatius was a disciple of John the Apostle. He lived his life for Christ. He taught others about Christ. He served Christ each and every day of his life. And then one day, he was, um, he was caught and he was going to be brought to a martyr's death. He was ready for that day of sacrifice because he lived every single day of his life sacrificing and following Christ, serving him. And when he went to his death, he, he cried out in the exact, out of this exact passage, he said, I am God's grain before being thrown to the wild beasts. So if we would really serve Christ and really be willing to lay down our life for him in the future, if we want to live out our hypothetical devotion, then we should be doing that now. We should be serving him now. We should not delay our courage or our faithfulness to him until a future date when everything aligns as we want it to align, but we should be serving him now. We should be laying down our life now. We should be producing fruit now. Serve him now. And whoever serves him, the Father will honor. But realize that the Father's honor is not like the world's honor. See, the world's honor is better status, better surroundings, better money. God's honor in this life may very well be persecution and death as it was for Christ. And so we must ask ourselves, would we rather live in the best of circumstances where everything is aligned as we want it to be without Christ? Or would we rather be with Christ, even if that means being with him in persecution and suffering? Is Jesus worth whatever the circumstances, whatever the cost? See, the real issue is an issue of our, of our prideful will. Are we willing to do whatever Christ calls us to do? Are we willing to surrender our leisure time? Are we willing to surrender a cherished hobby? Are we willing to surrender a sin or a past time? Are you willing to surrender your life? I don't know what God may be calling you to give up to serve him, but God does, and you do, or you will. Will you obey him? Will you serve Christ by following him 
and self-denial. This is a hard teaching. To give up ourselves, our very lives, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, it's hard to fathom. It is very troubling to to even possibly someday be asked to to give up my wife and, and children. How do we even approach such a thought? We can take solace and learn, dear friends, from Jesus. He himself was troubled by this teaching. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. The coming of the Greeks a few verses earlier launched a train of thought in Christ's mind that led to thoughts on his coming crucifixion and that he'd soon bear the sins of the world. The immediate prospect of the horrors of evil that awaited him throws the soul of Jesus for a moment into turmoil. He was tempted to pray that God would save him from the hour that had come. And this contemplation takes up maybe only a few lines in your, in your Bible. But when combined with the rest of the Gospels, we should understand that this temptation was real and that he was deeply distressed. The word for troubled in verse 27 signifies agitation, horror, convulsion, and shock of spirit in the Greek. There is strong inner turmoil going on in Jesus as he contemplates avoiding the painful experience before him. Now the statement at first appears different, completely different from what Jesus was just talking about. See, he displays extraordinary courage and bravery by exhorting his disciples not only to suffer death, but to willingly desire it whenever necessary. And now it seems like he, he shrinks from this exhortation. What, what's going on? See, Jesus knew that he was facing suffering and death, and his humanity responded to this ordeal. His soul was troubled, not because he was questioning the Father's will, but because he was fully conscious of all that the cross involved. Note that Jesus did not say, what shall I do? Because he knew what he was ordained to do. He said, what shall I say? When the time of or the hour of suffering and surrender comes, there's only two prayers that we really can pray. Either, Father, save me from this hour, or Father, glorify your name. And that's what Jesus does. He does not shrink from what he just taught or from the hour of his glorification. His resolve is immediate. He prays, Father, glorify your name. 
And how is the Father glorified here? By Christ humbly submitting to his will. He humbly submits to his will. So we must ask ourselves, how do we glorify God? Well, as we saw in these verses, culminating into Jesus' rallying cry to the cross, God is glorified when we lay down our life for him to produce fruit for Christ. God is glorified when we seek the eternal over the temporary. And God is glorified when we seek humility over honor. We need to resolve to glorify God. This is our big idea of this passage. Be humbled for God's glory. Be humbled for God's glory. As Christ humbled himself for God's glory, so too should we. Now this is hard work. And it's hard to do with any type of consistency. To be willing to give up our desires and life and seek humility. It's easier said than done. Is it wrong to struggle with this? Friends, realize from this passage and from Jesus' very example that being tempted to preserve one's life is not a sin. Temptation is not a sin. Nor is it a sin to express doubts. See, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, he paused in his resolve for a moment here. And he's without sin. Christ found strength from God in this moment. We can too. When tempted, it is not a sin to express doubts. But end your doubts with a resolve to glorify the Father. That's our fourth point for today. What? Jesse had a fourth point for today? What's going on? Surprise. When tempted, it is not a sin to express doubts, but end your doubts with a resolve to glorify the Father's name. And what an amazing prayer this is. Father, glorify your name. See, we read that Christ's soul was troubled. Is our soul ever troubled? Will it ever be troubled in the future? What are we to do in such circumstances? What are we to do when relatives die or when sickness strikes or when we lose our job? What are we to do when enemies abuse us and friends fail to understand? What should we do? Because what we want to do is pray, Father, glorify my name. Sure, we want God to be glorified too, but not at our expense or in a way that we would not choose personally. No, what we want, we want to pray that things get fixed for us. We want to pray that we would be vindicated, that everything works out so that we are lifted above our circumstances and that we are honored. But we must learn from the master who, when his soul was troubled, he prayed, Father, glorify your name. In other words, if I must lose my health, Father, glorify your name in my sickness. If I must lose my wealth, Father, glorify your name in my poverty. If I must lose my good name, glorify your name in my humiliation. If I must lose my life, then glorify your name in my death and send the resurrection. There is power 
in this prayer. And there is also danger in it. See, Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. And within days, he went to a torturous death. God answers Jesus in this passage, saying, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. This is a prayer that God will answer with reassurance immediately. As I was researching this passage, I realized that if there is at least one prayer that will always be answered with a yes, it will be this prayer. This answer will always be a yes. The answer will always be a yes to glorifying his name. God is concerned with his glory. The crowd was confused by the answer God gave. They didn't know if it was thunder or an angel. But no matter the confusion, Jesus tells them, this was for your sake, not mine. Jesus already knew the answer. But the crowd, whether it was thunder or an angel, it it wasn't a coincidence. Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name, and God immediately answers. When we resolve to glorify God's name, we are assured that God will glorify it again and again. And we are reassured that those who serve Christ will be honored by the Father. Our call this morning is to be humbled for God's glory. We must die to self to produce fruit for Christ. We must pursue the eternal over the temporary. We must seek humility over honor. Each of Christ's followers are seeds planted by God. We are planted in our neighborhoods. That's right. We don't have to go to the ends of the earth to produce fruit. We should be looking in our backyards as well as to the ends of the earth. We are planted in our workplaces. You have co-workers, hired hands, friends that you interact with daily. You are planted in Pier or the surrounding areas. You are planted in South Dakota. We interact with gas station attendants, drive through workers, waitresses, coffee baristas, and more. We are planted in our families. We're planted in this church. Students, you are planted in your schools and extracurricular activities. Instead of wishing for a better house in a different neighborhood or a different job or a different school or a different health circumstance or or a different fill-in-the-blank, realize that you are placed where God wants you right here, right now, in this time. Didn't Christ say in Matthew 25, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me? He was talking about those who fed the hungry, those who welcomed the stranger, who clothed the naked and visited the sick and those in prison. Didn't he say in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations? That includes both our backyard and abroad. These opportunities are all around you. Just open your eyes and serve Christ in any one of them. If fruit is going to be produced where we are, we must be humble for God's glory. 
You can either be humbled for God's glory and produce fruit for Christ, or you can live for self and remain unproductive and unhonored by the Father. And if you're wondering how to engage your neighbors, if you're wondering how to practically engage your coworkers or friends, here's a few simple tools to be equipped with. First, pray for them. Prayer. Prayer is a simple thing that we can do. Use that uh, bless every home tool that we've put out there to at least learn the names of your neighbors if you don't know them and pray for them daily. Secondly, reach out to them. Knock on their door or for coworkers or family, reach out to them and simply invite them to a meal. It's not hard. Come eat with us. Invite them to a meal. Help them shovel. Well, you don't have to do that right now. Help them weed their garden. Help them with something around the house. But simply reach out to them. There doesn't have to be a major church outreach initiative for us to start producing fruit. You don't have to be Billy Graham to present the gospel. Simply engage. Pray, Father, glorify your name and engage. Third, here's a simple tool I use all the time. It's a simple question I simply ask to start a conversation or sometime in the conversation. Do you know Jesus? It's a simple question. Do you know Jesus? Or do you know the gospel? Or what do you think happens when you die? It's a simple question. You don't need a theological degree to ask it. Do you know Jesus? Don't ignore your neighbors or coworkers or friends or family. Instead, reach out to them. Don't rationalize ways to stay in your comfort zone, but instead step out resolved to glorify the Father. When tempted, it is not uh, a sin to express doubts, but end your doubts with a resolve to glorify the Father's name. Pray, Father, glorify your name and charge ahead. And at any time, at any moment, my office door is open for you to come by and seek advice. Come by and say, my neighbor has cancer and is angry at God. What do I do? I'll say, come in. Let's talk about it. The harvest is plenty in South Dakota. Be one of the workers. Together, let's do the work of the ministry. Together, let's glorify our Father's name. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, this morning. Glorify your name. Glorify your name in and through us. Lord, help us to step out. Give us the courage to step out in faith and to talk to others about you. Lord, strengthen us for this. Give us the resolve to do it. Help us to glorify your name. Help us to, to uh, follow Christ's example. Lord, pour out your spirit on us. Lord, we seek revival. Pour out your spirit and move through us, Lord. Put, put life into these dry bones. Help us to have a fire for you. And Lord, we just thank you. We thank you so much for the death and resurrection of your son. As we think back to his triumphal entry, as we think back to that week, 
Lord, and, and his betrayal and his death and his resurrection. Through him and him alone are we saved. Thank you, Lord. We pray that um, uh, we go forth, Lord, from this, from this moment. Lord, be with each uh, believer here. Strengthen them, give them courage, encourage them, Lord, and bless them abundantly in their life and walk with you. Help us to go forward and, and be a fire for you. Lord, glorify your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen.